Yeah, hello. You've reached the Enormacast. Hey, Kaluz. It's Kelly Cordes calling. I'm just sitting here having a marg and thinking about you, you creepy old bastard. Don't worry, I pretty much do the same thing anytime I encounter someone shorter than me, as rare as that is. Um, anyway, I want to congratulate you on 100 episodes, dude. Great job, man. Great work. It's so cool that you put this out there. Uh, thanks a lot, man. And uh, keep it up. Chris, Brady Robinson here. Congratulations on 100 episodes. Thank you for chronicling our community stories, honoring our great characters, and remaining an irreverent son of a bitch through it all. Here's to the next 100 episodes, man. And uh, hiding behind the mic and editing audio might just be the ticket for taking breaks from your normal, baby. So keep it up, and thanks. Love the show. Yo, 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 Chris Kalus. This is Niall Grimes representing Sheffield, representing Ireland. Congratulations on 100 shows. It is my greatest surprise that I am not sick listening to you yet. I've been on board since the start. Loved them, liked them, hate them, all that stuff. Well done. Your big inspiration. I have gone on to do my own a normal style feature over this side of the Atlantic. All done with inspiration and nice style you've created. I've basically copied yours. So congratulations on that, 100. I wouldn't wish another 100 on you unless you're enjoying it. I'm sure you are. Keep cracking the whip. Kaluz, what's going on, man? It's Chris Hansen. Hey, listen, I appreciate the offer to uh, be your stunt double out in the Bermuda Triangle while you're out with the Enormo baby. But, I mean, honestly, who's going to believe you got that strong that fast? So I'm going to have to respectfully decline the offer. But anyway, man, congrats on 100 episodes. You're getting pretty good at this podcasting shit. Hope to see you soon, brother. Hey, Chris, Russ Clune here, giving you a call from the Gunks. Wishing you a very happy number 100. Keep at it, man. Talk to you later. Hey, Chris. This is Jonathan Segrist calling from a very, very sunny late February day in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm here in the park with my little dog, Zeke. Just calling to give you a huge congrats on your 100th episode with the Normal Cast. That's kind of a big deal. I always get a good laugh listening, man. Um, many times your podcast has helped me get through horrendously long drives or uphill slogs to the crag. So, yeah, all my best to the Normal Cast listeners and keep doing what you're doing. Cheers. Hey, Clues, it's Angela Van Stein. I'm just calling to say that I saw you ice climbing in those tin glasses with those plastic boots. Don't think I didn't see you. Oh, and happy 100th. Greetings, Chris. Conrad here. Congratulations. 100 to really get. It's like making the top of the pitch every single time. Open the chains. So congratulations and take care. Yo, what's up, Chris? It's Peaches. I mean, James Lucas. Good job on getting to episode 100 on the Normacast. That's pretty rad, man. Stoked for you. That's going to leave you a uh, anniversary small penis joke. I can't quite rise to the occasion. To delete this message, press 7. Hey, Chris. It's Alex. Just wanted to call and say hey and say congratulations on 100 episodes. And actually, randomly, I thought of you today because uh, I'm on a speaking tour on the East Coast, and uh, some folks came up and they're like, oh, we listened to you on the Enormacast, and it was so great, and we love that show. Um, so, yeah, I hope you're good. Chat later. Cheers. Hey, Chris. 
It's Angie Payne. I was just calling to say congrats on 100 episodes. That's pretty awesome. I just wanted to say thanks again for inviting me on there. Uh, It's still my very favorite interview that I've ever done. Definitely the most open I've ever been. And I think that that says a lot about the interviewer. So congrats, man. All operators are busy at this time. Please hold. Hey, Chris, it's Randy Levitt calling. Uh, happy 100th episode and really enjoy listening to your podcast. So, man, you need to take a break because you must be tired of winning. Okay, take care. Bye. Hi, Chris Kalus. This is your buddy Luke Neal from the Climbing Zine. Congrats on your 100th episode. And hey, thanks for uh, ex- you know exposing the world to my love of too soon poetry. And uh, believe it or not, there's still some girls out there that like that. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that with the world, buddy. All right, we love the Norma cast. We love you. Peace. Para español, o prima dos. Hey, Chris, it's Ethan. I just want you to know, dude, that I am sporting not one but two Enormo cast stickers on the side of my hydro flask. Two. I'm representing hard out there, dude. Also, we should uh, we should deploy that herd of shit-eating Labradors to Sierra Stat. I heard that place is just overflowing with human excrement these days. It's not good. All you crag shitters out there, all you toilet paper cigarette butt leavers, just know that every time you shit near the crag, and don't bury it at least six inches. A single tear rolls down Dilo Hita's cheek. Um, anyway, dude, congrats on 100 episodes. Hey, Kaluz, it's Andrew Bisharat. I'm calling to wish you congratulations on 100 episodes. And I'm also looking back at all the episodes, and I think I'm in contention for most appearances. And just like Alex Lowe said, the best climber in the world is the one with the most appearances on the EnormaCast. So if I'm not already the best climber in the world, uh, I certainly hope to make that a goal this next year. Bring me back on. I need the Enorma bump. Hey, Kalus, it's Craig DiMartino. Hey, man, just wanted to call and say congrats on the 100th. Super fun doing a podcast with you and really can't say anything bad except, except about all that swearing that you do. It's really bad for the, the kids who listen. So let's try to clean that up. Chris, it's Steph. Hey, congratulations on your 100th episode. It's phenomenal. I'm super proud of you. I always knew you were going to crush this podcasting thing because how could you not? But it's pretty awesome just to see how you've kept going and just gotten better and better. And I'm really proud of you. So awesome job. Chris Kalus, this is Brendan Leonard. I'm just calling to uh, congratulate you on... 100 normal cast episodes and thank you for not giving up on it. I would say I've had a ton of fun favorite moments listening to the normal cast. Uh, it's got me through a lot of long road trips, but I think my favorite one is uh, I can't remember which episode it was now, but I was driving to Moab on I-70 listening to you talk to somebody on the normal cast and this guy and I pulled up in a van next to me to pass. And uh, I looked over, and it was you driving your van. 
as far as like service goes as a, as a podcast host, you've, you've outdone everybody else I've ever listened to. Like Fiska Hall has never shown up like that. Uh, Tim Ferriss has never shown up like that. Mark Marin has never shown up out of the blue, but you did. And I want to thank you for that. As I leave this incredibly long message, I'm now clicking the donate button on the Normal Cast website to drop 50 bucks to say thanks for, uh, you know, this many episodes. That's like 50 cents an episode for me. I'd encourage everybody else to drop five or 10 or 25 bucks in there right now to say thanks. Cause I know you're a busy guy and you're about to become busier, but it's important that it keeps going. All right, man. Take care. Please hold for a very important message. You are listening to the Enormo cast. The Enormo cast is proud to be partnered with Sportiva. And here's the thing. There's only one shoe that has climbed the hardest roots on El Cap including something called the Dawn Wall. And that shoe is the TC Pro, designed by Tommy Caldwell and produced in a hollowed-out volcano in Italy by blind Zoastrian nuns. These are the shoes that our friend Hayden Kennedy once called crampons for granite. But the TC Pro is just one of so many legendary shoes in the Sportiva line. The Miras, the Testarosas, the Solutions, the Mythos. And something new called the Squama. What's a Squama? Who cares? It's Italian. So please support the Enormacast by going to Sportiva.com or your favorite climbing retailer to check out the full line of Sportiva shoes and then quit screwing around and buy a pair and come play with the big kids. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh Enormo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place that side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normacast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is March 7th at 12.01 a.m. Just turned March 7th. This is episode 100 of the Normacast, the last episode ever. No, this isn't The Sopranos. I'm still here. On today's show, Tommy Caldwell. You know, got an interview with Tommy Caldwell finally. We'd been trying to get it done for a while, and I finally sat down with him, and I thought, you know what? He's probably good enough to be on episode 100. James Lucas wasn't available again, so I thought that, uh, you know, Tommy Caldwell is almost as famous as James Lucas, so he can come and be on the show for number 100. So we started off with a little spray there 
I, of course, orchestrated that, which was a little weird. It's like inviting people to my surprise birthday party. But, you know, I don't have a producer, don't have an intern. I don't even know what I would do with an intern. And in fact, an intern would have been nice when I came up with my original idea, which was to do a clip show, you know, like a greatest hits. And, um, you know, when I started thinking about it and thought about listening to the last 100 episodes again, I was like, fuck that. I'm not going to do that. That sounds horrendous. And I don't even remember what went on like 50 episodes ago. So, uh, yeah, didn't come up with the clip show. That would have taken way, way, way too much work. And I have other things on my mind right now. So, yeah, so that was this version of a clip show. Those folks were awesome to participate. And uh, I actually asked some folks that would express something heartfelt. All those folks I respect deeply. They've given time and effort to the show, whether it's just coming on or helping get sponsors or just talking it up outside of the uh, interview room and uh, become friends with a bunch of them because of the show. So anyway, that's where all that came from. I want to explain a couple different things that came out in that beginning clip segment. First of all, Ethan Pringle's comment about the shit-eating Labradors. Well, that came from an idea that I came up with last year in Spain, which is when I interviewed Ethan about... uh, how to clean up the crags. Spanish cliffs, I hate to say it, they're fairly famous for having lots of excrement laying around very close to the cliff. And uh, I don't know what that says about, uh, you know, Spanish climbers, but doesn't reflect well, I'm going to tell you, if any of you guys are listening. So I came up with this idea, you know, a lot of people have these dogs that uh, eat shit. It's like a big complaint about your dog, especially running around cliffs and finding human excrement to either roll in or just chow down on. In fact, there was one at Sirana, ironically, that belonged to a certain very famous Spanish climber that Ethan mentions in his message. So anyway, so I came up with this idea. So why don't you just unleash like a herd of shit-eating dogs to the cliff like every couple months, you know, like when people bring the goats to to clean up their lawn and eat invasive species. Well, it'd be kind of like the same thing, a big herd of loping, friendly Labradors. Seems like it's a lot of Labradors that are into this. Or retrievers, golden and otherwise. Anyhow, just chow down for the afternoon. Warn everybody not to uh, let the dogs lick your face and teach them not to roll in it. And then uh, load them up and bring them back to the farm. And uh, Craig cleaned. Anyway, so we're looking for investors. Uh, I think Ethan's on board. And um, if anybody else wants to uh, invest in that, you know, you can get a hold of me at the podcast, chris at enormacast.com. Or if you have a dog that uh, has that foul, foul habit, then maybe you could lend them to us. Although I think Black Diamond actually orchestrated a cleanup in Serana recently, which Dilo Ojeda was, I'm certain, involved in because she's a BD athlete. So might be cleaner. Maybe we're we're talking out of hand here. Okay. The other thing I want to talk about in that intro was that um, there was sort of an inside joke with uh, Craig DiMartino's message as well, where he told me not to swear anymore. Well, fuck you, Craig DiMartino. Just because you made one of the best Enormacasts ever at number 11, I think it was. I was already, I already peaked at number 11 when Craig came on. If you haven't listened to that one, um, it's legendary and it's intense. One thing he did criticize, though, he was a little bummed that there was all this swearing and he kind of implied that it was me who, uh, who swore a lot. Because I think he played it for his kids or whatever, and there was swearing in it. And um, and then someone actually 
got in touch with me and said, hey, I want to play this for my students, but uh, yeah, it's got a bunch of swearing in it. Can you take the swearing out? Well, back in those days, I had time to do shit like that, so I did go and take the swearing out, but then I put the swears all onto a swear reel, just just the swear words, and uh, turns out that Mr. DiMartino swore like four times as much as I did on that episode, so I sent it to him, and um, somehow it ended up ended up on one of his kids' iPods, and uh, if they went on shuffle every once in a while out of the speakers of the car, their dad would sound like this. Earmuffs, kids. Damn it. Fuck. No, it's like, shit. Damn it. You're way the hell out. Shit. Oh, the hell. And I'm like, shit. Shit. Just scared shitless, and... And I'm like, shit, holy shit, shit, oh shit, oh shit, buddy, freaking ass, holy shit. So there you go, Craig DiMartino, potty mouth. And the full clip's like 40 seconds long. That was only about 10 of Craig's filthy mouth. Finally, I didn't put Brennan Leonard up to that bit about donating, although he did actually donate 50 bucks to the show, and he's donated before. And, uh, you know, he's not a wealthy man. He does okay, but I don't think he's... uh, you know, driving around in a sportsmobile sprinter. Actually, that story that he told in there, I, I think I passed him and he was in an old Astro van. Anyway, thanks to Brennan for that and uh, thanks to everybody who participated in my little gambit, my little ruse at the beginning of the show today. You guys are great. Everybody go back and listen to their episodes. Say hi to them when you see them at the Crags. Okay, I want to say one or two things about this interview. You guys know who Tommy Caldwell is, right? You know, I had to pick and choose to get it done in an hour, a little bit over an hour, uh, what we really got into. So there's a few things that we kind of like gloss over because I had specific questions and didn't really want to get him to tell the whole story again. So if you're not as familiar as some with Tommy Caldwell, it might behoove you to, uh, after the interview, go back and check out the whole story behind Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan, fuck, I can't even pronounce it now after he taught it to me. Kyrgyzstan. Huge story. We could have spent the podcast and more on it, but we uh, talked a little bit about it. But yeah, you want the details on that. It is incredible and amazing. Also, you might want to go back and find out what the Dawn Wall is because we talked about that a bit too. Ha ha ha. The Dawn Wall. There's more to this guy than the Dawn Wall, and that's what we're going to find out. So Thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with all the spray on the beginning of this episode. So much spray. Frothy, deep, luscious spray. That's what this show's about. Thanks for sticking around for 100. Let's enjoy a nice, relaxed conversation with Tommy Caldwell. And speaking of the enormous bump, since Tommy did this interview, a human child came forth from his wife, Becca. Amazing, the power of the enormous bump. Incredible. A human girl just popped out. Congratulations to Tommy and Becca. Maybe someday the normal baby can teach her how to aid climb. Hey folks, as you know, Black Diamond is one of the major sponsors of the Enormal Cast. And while the money they've handed me has disappeared into the dark hole of debauchery, they also hand money over to some important organizations like the American Alpine Club, like the Access Fund, and like the Nature Conservancy, the people who control a major part of Indian Creek. So when you're spending your money on new gear, consider the fact that not only do they make great gear, but they're also trying to protect the places that you're going to use it. Black Diamond, proud sponsor of the Enormacast. 
Right. And I basically, around this town, I said I'm doing this podcast. Lisa Hathaway is a good friend of mine. She did the first two. You know, BJ Savara from Splitter Choss. Andrew came on early on. Nice. And that was it. And then it, like, people thought, wow, this is really cool. And I get to know these climbers. And then, you know, for the first, like, couple years, it was tricky to get guests. Right. But now it's like no problem. Yeah, no, I feel like people making normal cast references all the time and it's just such a climber thing. I was I was super stoked. I was kinda like I was kinda like, why doesn't he ask me to do this earlier? You know? <laughs> well, I kind of I had like a inferiority complex because of the because in the beginning of how much sort of begging I was doing to get people to do it. Right. And that it's still I still have that like complex, which is silly. Yeah. But you know, I'm still just like, well, you know, if you have the time, like, it's, I mean, you know, it's not that big a thing, but, and I, and the other thing that I do is in the beginning too, is if I did get somebody from out of town, that was like a, a coup. And so I had like a list of people here who I was saving because I was like, all right, well, if it comes to the next episode and I don't have one, I can call Jeff Aki. Right. Right. And I still haven't had Jeff on because I've saved him. And every time he sees me, he's like, why haven't I been on? Because I asked him a bunch of times, like, it'd be cool if you did this, right? Yeah. It'd be cool. And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll do it anytime. And that was like three years ago. Yeah. Rob Pism's another guy that I, I, I really want to talk to. And I we just haven't done Although it, he yeah. blew me. Well, didn't blow me off. He got sick once when we were supposed to do it. But, yeah. you know, Grand Junction's just right over there. So I, I like kept him. And yeah. one that really breaks my heart is that I, I saved uh dave peg and like dave and i talked the summer uh last summer before yeah. before he uh he killed himself we'll just say it as blunt as possible um you know we talked about it all summer like hey we should do this and every time yeah. i'd see him he'd be like oh no chris i'd love to do it you know yeah and i was just like yeah any you know i'll call you up we'll, i'll bring over some some beers and we'll we'll sit down we'll sit down and it wasn't that i was saving him but you know the summer just went by and when you're you know you see someone every week you're like it doesn't feel so urgent. Yeah. And it just like breaks my heart that I didn't. Oh, okay. yeah. No, when you said that, I was like, oh, I wonder what it, what would have come out in that podcast in that time in his life. I know? know. And I'm sure we wouldn't have delved that deep into what was going on, you know, in terms of his depression. And yeah, but if somebody's like that, they're, they're just going to be in an interesting spot. You yeah. Know? No matter yeah. what they're talking about, I would and, think. Yeah. I mean, and, and just, uh, it would have been great to have it. And yeah. Just like, sure. okay, everybody's, you know, all, all, all his friends could like tune in for an hour of like old classic, yeah, fun Dave, yeah, yeah. You know? So, yeah. but thanks for coming, and I and I want to point out that your enthusiasm for it uh, is noted, <laughs> and that as as I got in touch with you over the summer, you were really excited to do it, and then when I re-upped my my sort of um, stocking this this winter, like. I emailed you and I think you emailed me like two hours later. Yeah, no, I looked through my email chain and I saw yours and I'm like, I'm responding to that that's, one. That's awesome. <laughs> because I can imagine, yeah. I mean, actually, I, I, I had a glance at your phone um, uh, when I saw you the other night and you had like, you know, the little message thing. It was like, there was a lot of waiting well, that's, emails. That's, you get a shitload of emails, I can only imagine. Well, that's partly lacked just due to my lack of life organization. <laughs> Well, I know, but that's what I mean. Like, I somehow yeah. rose through all that yeah. subterfuge. Totally. Yeah, so thank you so much, and I'm really glad you stopped by the house on your, on your way home eventually. So um, thanks for sitting down. Yeah, so it's like to be here. Yeah, let's get into it. I actually kind of wanted to start with a little reminiscence. 
in that. Ooh. And I've said, I've told people this before. They've been like, you should have Tommy on. And I've been like, well, you know, I do have actually have a relationship with Tommy. I knew him way back in the day. And uh, so you grew up in Estes Park, which this is all stuff I think most people know. Your dad was a climber um, along with Mr. Universe contestant or or at least that was sort of what he was after for a while as a big bodybuilder yeah i don't think he's mr mr universe maybe it is a bodybuilding thing yeah he oh, was yeah, um sure yeah, he was like mr colorado right. in like 1978 or 76 right before i was born yeah it's just like yeah. the it's just like uh the the beauty pageants like totally. you win colorado and then you get to go on to, uh, yeah. and mr universe is is like the the I mean, the universe, that's it's what it is, is what it says it is. Like, that was the one where, you know, like, Schwarzenegger was a Mr. Universe, I believe, at one point or another, so. Right, yeah. God, I think he's, he's like, proud and embarrassed about that era, because it really is, like, a beauty pageant. Like, oh, for sure. seriously, but for, like, macho dudes, yeah. but in this weird, you know shave every piece of body hair and then put oil on, up put yeah. on a fake tan wear a speedo my dad had this crazy tight perm yeah yep. there's some i mean anybody that so wants to can easily find these photos of this of of that era yeah. out on the internet but so anyway but i knew your dad because he was actually sort of a mentor of mine when i started guiding up at up in Estes park he was one of the head guides up there and definitely not only did he teach me about guiding but more nowadays, I remember some stuff he taught me about actually going rock climbing right? and being up on Lumpy Ridge and a bunch of us and him just, you know, throwing out tips because uh, even then for, for the day, he was like a really good rock climber and a big developer up on Lumpy Ridge. Yeah. Was he, was he one of the scene, kind of one of the senior guides? There? Yeah. He was yeah. basically, yeah, this is, Back then. this is the man yeah. for the, for like a couple years and yeah. then. He was he was already I think like moving away from it a little bit, but yeah, he was there to sort of teach us what's up. You yeah, know? and as like a like a you know five ten kind of trad climber, maybe getting into five eleven, like he was there to sort of give us some tips. And and I specifically remember a day on Lumpy Ridge where he just basically told us we were all climbing like idiots, and like. <laughs> You know, because we were climbing in that kind of like way where you're just futzing around and like as a trad climber, you've got all this crap hanging off of you that you don't really need. And, right. you know, he basically like stripped us down and was like, look, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Worry about the climbing and, and trying and, and that stuff will like kind of fall away for you, you know? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, anyway. he's a, yeah. He's a good teacher. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. Really good teacher. That's what he did for a living. Yeah. 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 And he can't turn it off still when I go climbing with him. He's like trying to give me all these tips. I'm like, dad, I think I might have this figured out now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that's what dads are for. Yep. You know? Yep. For sure. Um, anyway, I kind of wanted to ask you though, like you were around not only when I was there, but you grew up around this guide school, uh, CMS. It was owned then by Mike Donahue. And that was kind of the era when you were around. And I remember you coming around like a little, little kid. You know, you were being influenced by your dad. You were being influenced by the Estes climbing scene, I'm sure, those older guys that, that hung out on Lumpy Ridge and stuff. But what was your impression? Do you remember like walking in? Because, I mean, it was like a hard drinking, hard partying lifestyle in addition to us all being guides. Like, yeah. Do you have any impression of what it was like to kind of be around those guys? 
Yeah, I mean, it was funny because I would go. They would take me out climbing sometimes because mm-hmm. my mom was like the office worker, so that's really why I was there more than my dad is because my mom, like after school, it was the only place I had to go. Mm-hmm. I would I would walk from school over to the Colorado Mountain School and hang out, and the guys would be like, "Oh, there's just this little kid hanging around. If they had extra time, they'd take me out climbing." And they kind of became my mentor in this uh-huh. weird way, like these hard drinking things, which was kind of funny because when I was even younger, my parents had a weightlifting facility in our backyard, and my mentors then were like power lifters and bodybuilders and these you know meat heady dudes so i had um kind of that thing going on through the whole, through my whole childhood um but it was cool i mean i remember all the color mountain school parties up at um the donahue's house in allen's park and me and the and tobias would just be like building these massive fires out front and we'd right. come inside and see everybody drinking and um you know like warren harding came to our house and did a slideshow once when i was a little kid and um i thought it was rad yeah super cool so what was it like to be growing up there you know as a kid that grew up in the suburbs and and pretty soon when i was in high school wanted to be a climber wanted to move west to the mountains like once i got there just like anybody else you looked at i looked at the the kids at in this town where like i would have killed to have grown up and it seemed like a like the kids there weren't that outdoorsy in this kind of weird maybe opposite way like they wanted to go hang out in the malls that i hung out in when i was a kid and meanwhile i was in the malls and wanted to come hang out with them in the mountains you didn't really have a peer group that were climbers necessarily growing up um and being in high school and and stuff like that or did you no i never got the high school there or the middle school or the elementary school for that matter because it was like that all the kids just took the place that they lived for granted Mm -hmm. it's still like that all the people that are super overstoker and estes park are the ones that moved from the midwest right (laughs) but i had this dad that just like radiated this psych that was just totally infectious so i loved it i was Mm -hmm. like i was always every every day at school i was like why doesn't anybody go out in the mountains around here like why don't any of my friends do that so i was um my friends were always the guides that were 20 years older than me or when i started doing competitions it was like all my friends were in boulder i never really connected with the people in estes until now now there really is a community of people that go out and get after it that live there but they're all from the midwest Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I talked a little bit to Paige and, and she grew up there as well. And but by the time she was into it, there was a little bit of a scene at the climbing gym up there. Um, and she kind of did have sort of a peer group. And I thought of you because you're you're a solid, what, like 10 or 15 years older than she is. Yeah. Probably like 10 yeah. years older. So yeah. it's a whole nother generation. And I guess it mirrors much of the country where this like gym culture started to kind of appeal to a lot of high school kids i think and she said this too because of the social thing like she said mm-hmm. idol wouldn't have been a climber if, if it was like this solitary experience you know it was going to the gym and being with my friends that was foremost in the beginning yeah it was even like that for me i mean climbing was just something i did because my family did it okay i mean i loved it but i didn't own it until mm-hmm. i was um until i found that peer group which was my dad's design too his middle school he started a climbing program and i went to that middle school in loveland colorado right and through that pl- climbing program all of a sudden i was like oh here's something i can show to my friends and that's when i started to really own it and like have my own motivation and stuff that's cool that you brought that up because that was going to be my next question so you start to own it in this like little climbing group when can you say, or maybe it just happened and you one day woke up, but you know, 
What did it look like when you decided or when it started to be clear that this was something not only that you were going to do for the rest of your life, but maybe could be a, a profession or, you know, some way to just not work and, well, not work some crappy job and, uh, and keep going as a climber? It was never even an option for it to become a profession in my mind. You know, just like no, no, nobody made their living off of professional climbing except for maybe a few like Himalayan alpinists mm-hmm. or something like that. And I was a rock climber. So for me, it was kind of like I was traveling all over to these competitions. I got really into sport climbing and that was in my high school years. And then when I was, it was coming around to be time to graduate high school, I was like, okay, either I'm going to go to college like everybody thinks I should do, or I'm going to be a total vagabond, which is really what I wanted to do. And, um, but my, my mind wasn't like, I'm going to be a professional climber. It was like, I'm going to be a dirt bag. Right. And that was the path I chose because I just couldn't you know, I had all these amazing climbing experiences and I couldn't sit in a classroom. I just like couldn't make myself do it at that time in my life. And what was your, uh, what was your dad had groomed you into this person? Um, did he ever regret like, Oh, whoops, I've turned my kid into like, what's going to become a penniless dirtbag. You know, he'll be doing slideshows like Warren Harding when he's like 70 and <laughs> yeah, powering back wine or, yeah, I've, uh, I've wondered about that. I mean, um, I don't think too much cause he, you know, he admired that lifestyle. He admired sure. like living hand to mouth. You know, he lived in camp four when he was a teenager eating dog food and it was, in some ways it was like the best time. Wait, he ate dog food for real? Yep. Oh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways it was like the best time in his, his life, I think. Sure. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm sure he didn't hope I would become like Jim Bridwell or something. Right. But, right. uh, but I think he wanted me to go through that time of being dirt poor and traveling around. And that's, that's kind of like going to school in a certain way. It's like life lessons instead of learning about math and geography and sure stuff like that well i you know i saw him at five point this year and you know he's an incredibly proud dad now oh so, god yeah, yeah. Oh, over stoker yeah Absolutely. for sure so he did he did actually i think he can pat himself on the back to a certain extent like yeah. okay he's doing all right my yeah. boy's doing all right yeah so um th- now i have another question along the lines of professionalism but you know uh, our friend Hayden Kennedy, the Kennedy, and your friends with the Kennedys, they all live here. And, you know, Hayden's funny because his dad also, you know, brought him up as a climber. And, you know, for better or worse, instilled in him this kind of like, you know, you make your own way in climbing. You know, you don't sell out. You don't, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, and though Hayden like kind of has some sponsorships and things like that, like he's got this in him of like you can't. You know, the mountains aren't for sale or, or, or whatnot. Was your dad at all like that? Because he kind of comes from a similar era as MK, but maybe he wasn't an alpinist. And I think it really like burned in the alpinist community in the late 70s of this like, do it yourself. Don't accept, you know, these sponsors because they're going to tell you what to do and don't climb for anybody else but yourself. But was your dad ever like trying to instill that kind of thing in you? No, I would say I was more that way naturally than my dad. My dad's like amazingly, um, I don't know if the right word is progressive, but he always looks towards like the next thing and how things are going to evolve. Like he embraced sport climbing before anybody else. You know, he was out there in spandex and Estes Park before anybody else was. And he was bolting roots and he got, you know, he lost friends and got in huge debates. And so when sponsorship came around, he was like... I think that's what's going to happen in the future. And so you should go after it. He's shockingly 
not a curmudgeon really oh, okay. in any way, which right. is kind of amazing. I mean, it's kind of amazing. I think it's rare for somebody of that era to be like that. Totally. Yeah. Cause yeah. he could have come out and I think most of these guys did come out like the, you know, trying to hold on to the old flame as it were, yeah. um, as things change, but that's totally cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I'm the rest of my peers kind of were. Okay. So I've, I've always had this conflict. Like when I first got sponsored, there was a lot, you know, remember Dean, Dean Potter lived in my parents downstairs when I first got sponsored and he was so against that life. Mm-hmm. And I would, I, he was taking me out bouldering and I was cruising around with him a lot. And then I got my first pair of free shoes and he pretty much was like, I'm never going to talk to that dude again. <laughs> <laughs> right. But so. I, yeah, I mean, I, I the personality wise, I feel like you guys were on two different trajectories anyway. I mean, and, and actually I wanted to ask you a little bit about your personality, you know, that influence also from your family and from your dad in terms of, um, you come across just as like a pretty lighthearted, nice guy that has this inner ability to be, you know, have this deadly focus. Um, is that something that you think your dad created in you or you were born with or your family or your support group? I think it's a combination of all those things. I mean, I like my parents love to tell stories of me like spending three years trying to dig a hole to China through decomposing granite. Like as a three-year-old going outside with a shovel and just like for like, you know, two or three hours at a time. Like most three and four-year-olds just don't do that. But but my point would be you probably had a smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, no, I was like, I was like, dude, I'm going to dig a hole to China. This is going to be awesome. Yeah. I heard I was, about this somewhere. <laughs> and just go straight on through. Yeah. And I could totally focus on it. Um, my parents were also pretty busy as a child. So I think if you were to ask my wife, she might be like, yeah, maybe you just did that because they weren't really like entertaining you. So you had to find your own way. To, right. <laughs> own way to deal. And your, which is a way to raise your kids too, you know, like a little bit of self reliance there. Um, but then I think I got more so that way through climbing, like competition climbing, you got to be pretty dedicated and focused. And that probably was also that influence led me away from that kind of curmudgeon like no sellout because mm-hmm. competition climbers tend to, they're more in the spotlight. You get up, you know, you climb on a stage in front of a crowd of people and you get sponsorship and that's kind of how you make it happen. So I had that influence as well. Yeah. For me, it was never something to aspire to because it didn't exist though. Mm-hmm. But when it happened suddenly, cause I was like me and Chris Sharma and like, it's like Kevin Branford. Like we were the first kids ever to get spun like five ten, and uh, verve actually Christian Griffith were the first ones right. to really sponsor kids. Right. And we were like the very first. And I remember my first sponsorship from five ten. um, the sponsorship director, like had a big sit down talk with me. She was from like a tennis background or something. And she's like, we've decided to go this direction, but I'm seriously worried that what it's going to do to you guys, like in terms of um, like, if, you know, she just like had this stern talking to like, like you got to stay real. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. You got to stay real <laughs> kind of talk. And so that was good though. Cause I, st- right. I came into it with this huge sense of responsibility. Like yeah. I'm an ambassador. I need to, you know, I'm not, I'm not just going to like flaunt this. Right. Right. So you, um, you guys were like the first era of young kids coming in and like nuking the competition i mean you always i've heard you joke that you never were able to win because you had the unlucky uh situation of having chris sharma as one of your peers and competitors right so you came in second a lot yep yeah a lot like the phoenix bouldering contest was the big competition and i got second to chris like eight years in a row (laughs) 
But what was it like? And I, I kind of want to move on from from this, but I've wanted to ask some several people this. But what was it like to walk into you know this basically adult world? You know, these guys, adults taking this competition stuff really seriously. I mean, you guys had no problem beating a lot of these great guys that had been doing this for years and years and years. Was there resentment? Was there problems on their end? Because um, it feels like something where egos could have been shattered here and there. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it got shattered, but it, it got shattered in a way that just made it better. For it. it made them realize that, in my mind, it made them realize that they were just like being too serious you know self-serious about the thing mm -hmm. and at the at the time we thought we were crushing because we loved climbing more that was okay. kind of what we thought so climbing for us was like all about going out and having fun because the the competition climbers before us it was all about darkness and they're trying to burn each other off in competitions and so that's kind of the, how i grew up with it like chris is like smoking weed all the time we're like just partying and having fun and going out and climbing and crushing it. But in retrospect, I think it was more probably just because we started younger in the gym and you just get stronger that way. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, it lends itself a little bit, you know, to, to the body type of youth anyway. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's been proved over and over again now. And, it, and, it, and in other sports had already kind of showed that. I mean, you know, a gymnast is over the hill, you know, at 16 or whatever. Nowadays, it seems like unless they're like, you know, pretty naturally tiny or whatnot. So yeah. I think it was like a lot of things. Climbing was like late to the game to introduce, start introducing kids to this sport. Yeah, for sure. And the competition climbers back then, they didn't seem like they liked climbing at all. Yeah, not even the competition climbers, but sport climbing, at least in the U.S., kind of started off on that foot. Yeah, like they're all, yeah, they're all anorexic and just you go to rifle and you just hear swear words echoing up and down the canyon. Yeah, out of Matt Samet's mouth. <laughs> yeah, because Matt has been on the show yeah. and he talked yeah. about, you know, and he just said that, what you just said, like, look, we weren't eating. Yeah. And that's really bad for you and really bad for your attitude and, and like to not eat and then try to push yourself like over the limit every single day, day after day. Yeah. It's going to make you grumpy. For yeah, sure. for sure. <laughs> yeah. It is funny. And I've noted that too, like pictures of that era, especially the Frenchies, you know, like the super skinny, like smooth. And then you skip ahead to like Sharma, who's like jacked, you know, yeah. and, and it seems totally like, duh. Like, oh, you mean having <laughs> muscles might help you climb, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, well, let's skip ahead. Um, I don't really want to go uh, detail by detail through your Kyrgyzstan. Is, was it in Kyrgyzstan? Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. Okay. I don't really want to go through the details of your Kyrgyzstan blowout. And um, anybody who's followed your career or if you want to get online, you know, we're talking about a harrowing experience, kidnapped. You thought you killed a guy. Turned out you didn't kill that guy. You were with your who was to become your wife wife afterwards, right? Afterwards, yeah, yeah. Beth Rodden. I guess I do have a curiosity around this story and more on a personal level. So you've talked about that coming home, thinking that you had had killed someone. I mean, for survival to protect your then girlfriend. But what was it like? You've sort of hinted at it, or in the conversations I've heard you talk about, like this feeling of of having killed somebody and gone through this experience. Like when you guys got home, you know, what, what was your mindset? I mean, did you like have post-traumatic stress? Did you, were you happy to be alive or were you kind of like somewhere in between? 
I was a little bit of both. I think I mostly internally I was like, we lived, you know, I'm, I'm like, got to live every day to its fullest. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I just killed somebody and everybody's looking at me thinking that I need to be totally traumatized, except, right. especially the people that are close to me. So I always had this questioning. I was like, I kind of want to just like go out there and get back to life. But uh, my girlfriend, Beth at the time is, you know, really traumatized. And I almost felt like I had to act traumatized okay anyway, and, and i think i was but um my way of coping with that was you know what i wanted to do was just kind of like live every day to its fullest right but i'm like god if i'm just like going out and climbing all the time and not moping because i just killed it I, does that make me an evil person sure and like I, maybe like are other people judging me in this yeah this way of like yeah. oh, i killed somebody and i should yeah that's really interesting yeah i was i was super self-conscious mm-hmm. about the whole thing for a long time. Right. And then it didn't help where, you know, you were also questioned a few months later about whether the veracity of you guys' whole story. Yeah. There's all these crazy twists and turns. Right. Right. But yeah, this guy, um, John, Nancy Pritchard was the one who started it out, but, um, yeah, questioned it and researched it and was going to write a book on the conspiracy theory, essentially. Right. And tell the guy that you thought you killed said oh yeah they pushed me off a cliff yeah dateline revealed the story right yeah so so did you express the same feeling then to the people who were close to you of like or maybe asking them do you think i should be feeling differently or no i think i internalized it mostly Uh i was just like walking around in this weird altered reality of being self-conscious and not knowing how to act um and just be and just uh, I guess just portraying that, like sort of the self-consciousness, I suppose. Right. And did yeah. it just kind of finally, you know, get out of the news and go away and let you sort of get on with your life? Um, you know, I think I, I did eventually get back to climbing pretty right. full on and that was a good healing for me. And I started to realize, like I went back to El Cap and started to climb and I started to... F- I started to figure out these sort of empowering aspects of that the whole thing. Like it was so painful and we suffered so hardcore that going up on El Cap just felt chill in comparison. And, you know, within six months after that experience, I was like, wow, I almost feel like I've discovered this like superpower or something. Like there's stuff built within me that I never would have found if I hadn't gone through that. And um, so that was incredibly empowering and that fueled me in a lot of ways. And so that was that era then. Had you been free climbing on El Cap before Kyrgyzstan? Yes. Yeah. Kyrgyzstan? Yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd done, um, I'd done a handful of routes on okay. El Cap before that. Actually, right did, I guess two. I'd done one with Beth and mm-hmm. then I'd also free climb the South Wall. Okay. So in talking a little bit about your, you eventually married Beth mm-hmm. and um, you guys got divorced. I don't know how much longer, what was the sort of time frame between the Kyrgyzstan and, and the extent of your, your marriage to Beth? Um, you know, we got engaged after Kyrgyzstan, we just dated for a couple of years and then we we're engaged for like okay. a year and a half and then we got married. And that whole period from like Kyrgyzstan to divorce yeah. was like 10 years. Okay. And that was like, I mean, you guys were like a celebrity couple. That was your big, you know, era on freeing El Cap roots, being up there. You guys both did the nose, you know, and, and in my mind, like all the videos, it's Tommy and Beth, right? Yep. And I actually also saw you in 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 uh, Yosemite at that time, and would run into you here and there. And it was like you guys became kind of this really uh, celebrity couple. And in my mind, like watching from afar, I've I've always wondered like if you guys were aware of that, 
And because it was kind of this new thing in climbing, like along with the beginning of sponsorship, which, um, you know, you were at the beginning of your, your group of guys, it had existed, but it was all of a sudden this really like path that you could actually take if, you know, you made some of the right choices and weren't talented enough. And then you guys emerged, I think, as like the first group of celebrities, Chris, yourself, you know, Katie Brown was in there as like people who we weren't just interested in climbing. We were interested in a lot of ways in their lives outside of climbing the same way we are with these movie stars and sort of, sort of stuff. And I say we because, you know, even though most of it's good natured and we're not like TMZ trying to find dirt on everybody, <laughs> it's still that same, I think, human compulsion of like, well, I wonder what they're like and I wonder what they are like in real, real life and could I be buddies with them and all those sorts of weird things that we have. Right, yeah. So you guys be, were you kind of aware of this, you know, status that maybe you had, had like, you were like the first couple of climbing, so to speak. Yeah. I think that we were pretty, pretty darn aware of it. And there was like a lot of this post-traumatic effects. Like Beth and I were viewed as this really strong couple, partially because we were just like so freaking bonded. Like we didn't go anywhere without each other for mm -hmm. Um, you know, 10 years or something, we did everything together. Right. And so just by proxy, everybody's like, wow, they're always together doing this stuff. It must be so cool. And it was, it was really cool. It was like amazing to have this really, um, you know, this really passionate, strong climbing partner that's just there for you no matter what, like we, that relationship never had this, like, what do you want to do versus what do I want to do? It's mm -hmm. always like, what do we want to do? And so I think people admired that a lot and, um, yeah, it drove us pretty hard. And then, and then just like, I think our sponsors just started to view us like that and sort of market us like that too. Is yeah, like you said, like the first couple of climbing, mm -hmm. which I hate that term. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'm not like, yeah. I'm not bringing it up as like you guys lucked out or anything. I, th right. I'm bringing it up actually as something of a negative. Yeah, I mean, I think Beth more than me was. She never liked being a public person at mm -hmm. all. She was really adamantly kind of against that. Mm -hmm. But it was how we made our living. So um, it was just kind of this funky thing, you know. Right. And the question I want to ask you about that and why I wanted to lead up to this with this first couple thing is that when your when your marriage did dissolve, you know, and I don't know the details, and I don't want you know to to you know get you to, to start talking about that because you know Beth isn't here or whatever, but. What was it like then that first couple thing like must have turned pretty dark when, you know, we all and I say we because I was enough in the media, people knew and it was like this first kind of or not first, but it was like this little scuttlebutt on the Internet and what happened and who's and it became this really public thing. And it was like even myself who felt like, OK, this is none of my business. It's like I knew details of it anyway, just from being around. Right. So what was it like to, I mean, to, to be, you know, to have this personal thing happening to you guys, not easy, not pretty, be sort of public. It was like super hard, honestly. I mean, I, I think that, um, <clears throat> I mean, like Beth really didn't want the details to come out. Neither did I, you know, we didn't want the details to come out about it, but everybody's interested. 
Um, it was one of the most settling, like unsettling dark. It was probably the darkest time in my life, honestly. Like right. even even having killed somebody, it was like I would say it trumped that. You know? Trumped the thoughts of having murdered someone. <laughs> yeah, kind okay. kind of. I mean, that was it. It just lasted longer too. I mean, maybe publicly it didn't seem like it lasted long, but I went through like I'm not a depressed dude. Like I went into that relationship that you know at ten years with Beth, I was like, oh my god, this is the most incredible thing at all ever. I have this very idealistic view of the world i always i always just like learn to love what i have so much that's totally my dad's fault i guess because he's just like Jerk. that <laughs> you know so when it fell apart i was just like what has happened here like it was pretty devastating mm-hmm. for me in a lot of ways and um i think i just tried to push out and ignore the public side of that as much as possible um so yeah maybe i didn't even dwell on okay. what it meant to be a public figure but it was i mean it was unsettling because i was like oh we lived 10 years without any drama and then i was like now this is the most drama ever right right yeah well and you know there's two things happening like i said we do have even if we try to pretend we don't you know we have this celebrity culture and climbing now and it's intense because it's also still a really small community and peripherally like it doesn't take long for these things to kind of percolate through a certain core level of, of the climbing community. So, yeah. so then you move into this El Cap era, El Cap. Okay. You, you basically do the hardest route on El Cap. You do this route in, in good style. It's got, it's got multiple pitches of 514. It's got multiple pitches of 513. Why didn't anyone care about the dihedral wall? Uh, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you never know. I think all this stuff is so random. Yeah. It just depends on like timing and, um, you know, people were just interested in other things at the time. It's weird. When I did the nose, everybody was super stoked. Right. I think it's probably because of that root had this big history behind it and this kind of legacy built up. Um, but the dihedral wall, <laughs> I don't really know. Maybe I'm it's playing games with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But seriously, was it, it, it? No one's done it since, have they? No, no. And it's like soup. I mean, at the time, it was like the hardest big wall in the world. Yeah, probably, probably. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is. There isn't there like a bunch of five fourteen on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of roots on El Cap like that and the magic mushroom. Magic mushroom. No yeah. One. Like when yeah, I say no one, one, I don't mean no one because obviously climbers we cared about it. Yeah. But like compared to what happened on the Dawn Wall. Yeah. In terms of of greater exposure, I just kind of laugh because it's like, yeah, well, he was up there like epicking. Maybe not as long. Obviously not as long. Yeah. But you know, trying really hard on all these roots, doing them in incredible style. Because you, did you ever do the dihedral in a day? No. 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 But Magic Mushroom you did, didn't you? Yeah. And I was, my style back then was to do them all in a single push. So right. I, yeah. But I did the, I did do Magic Mushroom in a day as well. How hard's Magic Mushroom? It's harder than the dihedral wall even, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it, would, it was this funny era though. I think, I think I owned, you know, I was like, I was kind of a curmudgeon. I was like, you have to do all the hauling yourself. You could never hire porters. You have to, yes. you have to, you know, I was like, had all these really strong ethical stances and, I was, and social media wasn't really a thing yet. Right. Um, so not that many people really 
they couldn't follow the story. You right. know, there was no way to follow the story. Right. Because there was also this thing, and Beth was really like this, and this was kind of the influence of Ron Kalk. Like, you should never tell anybody about your project until after you've done it. Like, no photos until you after you've done it. And I wasn't totally, that, I wasn't going all the way that way. Right. But um, I was a little bit that way. Like, if there was ever any photos or anything taken before I'd done it. Or at least, you know, I'd let a videographer come with me, one of my buddies, you know, had to be like a really close friend of mine if sending was inevitable you know right that was it yeah, yeah, or they'd have to like lock the footage away until something happened till you sent it or something yeah like yeah that. kind of yeah well I, I i mean that's interesting because i've been complaining in my curmudgeonly way and maybe not necessarily on the podcast but yeah the pre-spray is what i've been calling it yeah like, we find out about all these roots and see footage of them and they're on the cover of magazines long before they ever get sent yeah. You know, and it's the influence of of sponsorship through these companies wanting more and more and more media. And that's actually also the Internet is like this this like bottomless, you know, you can never fill it up with enough media. Right. And so I always, I just feel like, OK, the pressure has been on these athletes, yourself included, to always be creating media. And so, you know, pretty soon they're like, well. Let's talk about it, not just after you do it, but we can get twice as much media if you talk about it before you ever do it. Yeah. And if it's going to be a multi-year project, that means we can just keep milking it, you know, like yeah. get more and more stuff out of it. Because I, I feel like there was an era, yeah, where people, and maybe, and there's a lot of climbers still, like, yeah, you can't even, you know, you can't even print this still photo of me on this route if I didn't do it. Right, yeah, no, I think there was this whole sentiment of like, this resistance against selling out like you have right. to be real you have to do what you can't just portray something that you're not mm -hmm. and it's all it's a whole like internal versus external thing and um that's kind of fading a little bit um yeah it's kind of like if you have something to prove you better be real with what you're proving you mm -hmm. know like if you're just making it look like you're proving it then it's just it's just not real so um, I think I let go of it at some point because I just became a little bit more self-confident and I was like, I don't really have anything to prove anymore. Right. Know? Well, the other problem with like those ascents, like the magic mushroom and the dihedral wall and all that sort of stuff is that you, you owned El Cap at that point. And, you know, I think there was just like, oh, he did another one. Oh yeah. He freed something else. Yeah. Oh, you know, no, 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 it just yeah. got like all compressed, <laughs> but uh, you know, the magic mushroom in a day and the dihedral wall as a push and just freeing it like those two roots i mean they're still they've only been one upped by what you what you did last year yeah. the dawn wall like they're they're sitting there and there's been no one i mean has anyone ever even attempted to get up there and free them people have played around they're they're freaking amazing roots they're kind of the best ones too i mean really excited for the era where people try them right but i think that um you know El Cap's a super like beat you up you know it takes dedication it takes a lot of experience so everybody goes and they do they do the free rider and most people either fail on that or like they're like screw that i'm gonna go back to the support crags after that yeah and they never kind of progress up to those because most of them aren't quite as bullheaded i guess or yeah and it takes you know it takes a certain lifestyle too yeah you know like a, a lot of dirtbag climbers really good climbers they can they can find that kind of time 
before moving on or, 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 or going a different direction or whatever their life hands to them. But, you know, without actually being a professional climber, you know, like the Hubers were, like you were, yeah. um, Scotty Burke wasn't. He managed to do it without being a professional climber. <laughs> but I think it's really hard to sort of be that kind of dedication, that kind of time without life just pulling you off into a different direction. Totally. Yep. All right. So, yeah, we've sort of been just talking about El Cap. We've been segging into the Donwall thing. And um, I have some questions about it. Again, we're not, I don't make you run down the whole operation um, because it's been covered a bunch of different places. So I let, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you've expressed having been uncomfortable with what, at first anyway, what became this media storm that climbing has never seen. Um, you claim to have dropped, and I'm doing podcast air quotes, uh, your phone <laughs> sometime during the operation. Yeah. Come clean. Did I, you drop I, I it? I dropped it. I totally dropped it. And it was the kind of thing where... Um, for about 10 seconds. I was like, oh no. And then I was like, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> right when uh, right when Kevin handed you his phone, you're like, oh, that's right. We still have one up here. <laughs> yeah. Slapped it out of his hand. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I could talk a lot about that whole, the whole media surrounding that and how just like bizarre. And I mean, it's been this totally two-sided thing. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, uh, let me pause that for just a second because i i want to talk we're on a, we're on a climbing podcast you know mm-hmm. uh, we don't you don't have to tell us how you pooped up there or how you <laughs> managed to live on the wall or anything like that because we know about all that stuff but i do want to ask you some things about the actual climbing first of all how long were you guys up there what was it 17 days or something like that N- 19 days 19 days yep. a lot of that had to do with the fact that kevin got stuck trying to red point what 15 16 17 what was the pitch yeah that was like seven days right. of um him just basically staring at his fingertips going fuck right right and, you <laughs> and said, doing like and doing like a burn or two and then resting like two days and trying to get his skin to heal it was like yeah there's a, wasn't a whole lot going on well the thing i was going to ask you about and and is kind of amazing is sort of what did you see as preparation all of your uh, you know, leading up to that, whether it was seven years or whether it was specifically the year prior. And what kind of did you see as like you just got super lucky to get that kind of weather window in January? Like you guys, like it was an amazing amount of decent weather that you cats got when you were up there. Yeah, no, it, it was so lucky. I mean, you're bound to eventually get lucky if you're if you try something hard enough. So there's or if you try something long enough. I mean, 7 years on the same route. But it was it was like unheard of and um I remember trying to get Kevin to skip Christmas because I'm looking at the weather forecast and seeing this high pressure system. And we'd realized that cold, really cold was made a huge difference. And right. So, but, but once it starts getting wet, you get all this crazy ice fall and it gets gnarly. So I remember being like, Kevin, we got to go like now move Christmas up with your family. Like called my whole family. I'm like, we got to have Christmas on December 23rd because I got to go back out there. It's just a day. What the yeah. Hell, yeah. They're all, they're all like, sure. And I'd call Kevin and be like, ah, oh, I really can't can't do that dude i had so i was just like freaking out mm-hmm. and um but what time did, when did you actually start do you remember um we started like the 29 okay. like the 28th or the 29th something like that okay yeah i mean how many serious like 
this could be it kind of attempts had you made at that point over the years? Um, like where you're really like, oh, this could be it. Like we could do it yeah, this time. Two really okay. one, one with Kevin, like mm-hmm. on our, maybe our third year climbing together. Okay. And then one where I was like going to have a baby the next year and Kevin got early, got injured and he was, he was pretty iffy a lot of times like right. at the beginning of the season be like, I don't know, man, like, I don't know if I can take three months of my life and go beat my head against this wall. You know? Well, yeah, that's kind of what I was mentioning earlier. Like yeah. to climb on El Cap, you have to like really put everything on hold. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so there's this, yeah, that one year I, it was pretty sad going up there and being like, I got to do this. Like if I don't do it now, I'm going to have a kid. I'm never going to be able to do it. And Kevin's injured. And so my whole family, like everybody, you know, I, I probably would have given up, but like my family and my, my wife came on the wall and blamed me for 10 days straight. Kelly Cordes came up. Like everybody's like, this is it. You got to do it. And it was, it was like hard because I was failing and it wasn't just me failing. I was failing all these people that were supporting me and I'd kind of abandoned Kevin and then I didn't do it. It was like really glad it didn't happen that year. Well, that's, I actually wanted to ask you that. I mean, you obviously, when you're on the, the ascent last year, you showed this incredible dedication to Kevin. And I think, you know, of all the stories that came out of that, that, that non climbers don't understand. It's that one. You, because when you re- read it in the media, it was like you guys were stuck. Right. <laughs> and they played it up as though like, you know, you could die up there because you're stuck in this one place. Yeah. And all of us climbers knew that. No, 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 no. He's he's already sent the pitches above it. Yeah. Even what that means to a non-climber like, you know, the thought exper- experiment I went through a bunch of times thinking about how I would explain this whole operation to a non-climber like blew my mind. Like, how do you explain a red pointing of a pitch and the fact that you had already climbed the pitches, but then you went back down and like, but that was the story that climbers understood is that you were up there chilling out, possibly putting your kind of dream in jeopardy, although you knew you could probably finish, but still, I mean, a storm comes in too quickly and you're done for, right? you know, in terms of climbing the top of El Cap. I mean, it gets iced up and snowed over and whatever else. And that can happen you know, really quickly in the Sierra. So that was a big part of it. But aside from your dedication on that ascent to Kevin, what was your dedication to trying to find a partner or to do it, you know, with at least relatively equal or on a, on an adventure with another person versus what you just said? Because yeah, I mean, honestly, if I'd have had time, you know, knowing you and, and knowing your dad, if, if, you just said, Calusa, I need someone to come up here and blame me on my scent. I, if I'd have had time, I'd have gone and done it. Yeah. You know, I'd have jugged up there and I know how to survive on a wall. So it's like, you know, what was the, in your mind, like the importance of doing it one way versus having this just jugger, you know, subby kind of ascent that actually most of these free climbing feats are often this, you know, someone jugging with the person and just being a subby. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's logistically way easier to do it that way. Um, and I'd done a lot of routes that way. Um, but I try, I don't say I tried it by myself. I tried to like pull the weight with just having my friends and family and everybody come up and belay me. Um, and I realized through that process that I'm like, I thrive in a collaborative atmosphere. You know, it's kind of like that thing. Nobody, nothing's as good unless it's shared. And Kevin and I had this amazing energy up there on the wall when we were climbing together. We pushed each other. We we're competitive with each other, you know, in this really like cool way that, um, I never could have done it without Kevin. And it took me a lot of years to really sort that out. And so 
when we got to the point where I was like, I could climb to the top and Kevin might be able to do this. That was like an incredibly depressing thought. I really didn't want that it to go down that way. And, um, so yeah. And it was so stressful for Kevin, dude. It was like amazing. He didn't drop his phone. He was like following every word that everybody was saying is <laughs> the whole world was watching him talking about it, the freaking skin. And, um, and it was it was like so magical to watch him go through that and pull it out in the end. Okay, so let me ask you a a, a question of maybe going the other direction. Be honest now. Okay. So you're up there five six days waiting. Like in your inner world, were there the moments of just like Christ, dude? Like give it up. Like look at your damn fingers. This ain't going to happen. When can we get off of this thing? Kind of, kind of ideas. I mean, as a human being, yeah. So to speak. I mean, I, I like took out all the insurance policies, right? I climbed the next five pitches above where he was right. struggling and got to a point where I knew I could blast to the top in a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would, I would always blame Kevin and then I'd go and continue up and then he would blame me late, you know, late into the night afterwards right. on those days. And then, um, and I was like, you know, we we're paying attention to the weather forecast. And so I always had it in my, the back of my mind where I was like, well, if we know a storm's coming and Kevin gives it up, I can just blast to the top in a day. But I was never going to be the one that was like, just give it up, dude. Like <laughs> you've tried hard enough. <laughs> yeah, that would suck. Yeah. That would be a legacy that you wouldn't want to live with. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, uh, so eventually he'd have had to give in for you guys to top out without him doing it. It wasn't going to be you. Yeah. Or a storm was like on the horizon. I mean, I definitely thought about that a lot. I was like, man, if he, if he totally hits a wall and can't do this anymore, um, am I going to just say, we're not going to do it? Right. Will will you like, yeah, could you have made the call? You lucked out and didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Well, and the other like thing is for the story as it were, because again, talking about the way non-climbers viewed this, epic battle you know and i just think about it i'm like they really had no idea why the hell what the hell was going on you know because again it kept being this thing of you guys were stuck yeah it's like (laughs) i'm like they're not stuck (laughs) yeah we could have wrapped the ground and and that's and what i wanted to ask you is that honestly like you could have finished and still gone back like really like cashed the final insurance card but it would have sort of popped this bubble I think that had surrounded the climb. If you had literally just topped it out and everybody would have been like, you're the most amazing thing. And you said, well, I'll see you later. I got to go back down and see if Kevin can finish yeah. it. Like, did that ever cross your mind? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, I would have felt like it, I would have left my buddy at the in the battlefield wounded, you know, and been like, all right, see you, dude. I'll come back afterwards right. after everything chills out a little bit. I go get a sandwich at the <laughs> deli and like, I'll wrap back in. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I just kind of wanted to get a feel for that because the, uh, like that's an epic battle. And then the other thing that's kind of been curious about it, and you know, it was your climb. Like you're the pioneer, the guy that found it and put the time in. Kevin has been there nearly as long as you have. Ironically, he's sort of the Dean Caldwell of like lost, you know, a little bit in the in the media push. But in my mind, when you think about what he accomplished in terms of where he came from as a primarily a boulder that's always pointed out and learning to wall climb 
and then eventually doing, you know, what's the hardest climb in the world, the hardest big wall climb in the world versus you, you know, this guy had done all these El Cap scents and like, there was a time, like I said earlier, where it's like you were doing so many, like we didn't even care anymore. Like you'd get a blurb and Alpinist for doing the hardest big wall in the world kind of set up. So like, what was your kind of view of that? And, you know, the admiration that maybe you came out of it, of this kid who was a boulder and, you know, graduated to climbing the hardest big wall in the world. Um, it was, it was complicated. You know, there was two sides of it at one, at one hand, I was like, God, this is so admirable. He's, he's such a, such a badass climber. He's so talented, you know? Um, but after working on the route, I think we were up there together for five years. Obviously he learns how to wall climb. People are like, Oh, it's the first wall climb ever. And he would, he would always say this thing. He's like, I want the Don wall to be the first time I climb El Cap. And in some ways you're like, that's kind of cool. But I would be like, you know, fucker, like, why aren't, why aren't you paying the toll? You know, right. I put, I put 10 years of my life into figuring this stuff out. And now you're just like, you're just, you're just like getting it. I'm just like handing it to you and you right. don't even seem appreciative of it, you know? <laughs> so there's, there's definitely that side of it. So I was always, and I was always trying to get him to go to Yosemite without me and never did. And I'm just like, you're just like leeching off of me. You know, that's being, that's being totally honest. Right. You know? like, Again, and that's you're a, a human being. Yeah. That's all, that's all my parts of your soul as well. <laughs> yeah. That's all my self-consciousness, you right. know? But on the other hand, like he pulled off some amazing stuff and the fact that he was able to just learn that world and be so dedicated and something that was so far outside of what he knew was absolutely incredible. And the fact that he didn't have to pay that toll and spend 10 years on El Cap right. um, was amazing. And then just the fact that he could perform under so much pressure. <laughs> yeah. The pressure. <laughs> yeah. It was one of the coolest things I've seen. So all the night climbing, right? The climbing at night, what were you guys hiding? <laughs> uh yeah standing on bolts and you know <laughs> i mean seriously nighttime in january yeah. is it really that much better conditions it is yeah no. <laughs> yeah but i can see why this is my big cat yeah. like gotcha question yeah right don't <laughs> gotcha revealed yeah yeah. Um, all the cameramen, non-disclosure, non-disclosure <laughs> contracts. What's up with all that? Yeah, everybody was so wondering it's about that. It's a conspiracy. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All the way to the White House, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it really was. It was freaking hot up there, and even in January yeah, in the sun. that's awesome. And yeah. I mean, that that kind of climbing, it, it, again, back to like trying to explain you know, and the, the very, the superlatives that were in the media about like how small the holds were. Right. And, and it's funny because like, you know, they'd be like, yeah, they're, they're, the holds are thinner than a dime. I'm like, no dude, a dime actually would be sweet. <laughs> like a dime thick edge, like a yeah. proper edge. Like that's a foothold to like, yeah. you know, write home about on yeah. that sort of climbing. So, and, and again, you're, you're just like, you guys don't quite get it, but who cares? You know, they can keep talking about these dime coin-sized <laughs> edges. You're like, coin-sized edges is pretty sweet. Yeah. You know? yeah. One last, like, logistical question. And I think you've covered this before. What happened to the dino pitch? Um, I don't know. It was a good... It because was, that, like, that, like, bubbled to the mythology of this whole route. Yeah, it was a good... Because of that video. Yeah, it was a good, um, like, lesson in life. If you, if you try something over and over again and you can't do it, just, like, go around it. 
<laughs> you know, that's what I had to do. I there's this move. I was convinced it was the only way, and I rebuilt it on my shed at on my house. And I, you know, I tried it thousands of times. I like tore the labrums in my shoulders. I beat myself up. I would be out in my yard, like screaming and yelling and trying this thing over and over again because it really had come down to this one move for me, and I just was like never able to do it. And I was just like, well, I guess I'll just have to figure it out when we're up there, you know? Uh-huh. And then just miraculously, I finally figured out um, like two weeks before we went for the push, a little bit before Christmas, that you could do the most retarded pitch around it ever. Like you climb back down 100, you do like 200 feet of climbing and you end five feet from where you just were. And that was the way around. Yeah, but that's, I mean, there's other El Cap routes that have, have those sorts of operations on them. Yeah. It kind of seems like a little bit standard to get some of these aid climbs turned into free climbs. Yeah. No, there is definitely that kind of stuff. This one was especially weird because the belay ledge they were standing on was right in the blank section of rock at an old aid climbing belay. Mm -hmm. So you actually stepped out of the right side of the portal ledge to a a stance. That was the beginning of the pitch. You climbed 200 feet around and then you ended on a belay on a, on a stance just to the left of the portal ledge. Okay. So actually then after the, you got to the stands and be like, I finished the pitch. You just step back into the same portal ledge that you left a really? pitch earlier. Yeah. Honestly? Yep. <laughs> but you'd step into the other side of it. <laughs> I mean, granted, it's a big portal ledge. Yeah. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's really absurd. Again, try to explain that to uh, to CBS News. Um, okay. So a, a little bit, not just about the media push um we all know it was crazy we all know it was like over the top nothing any climbing situation at least in the united states has ever seen um obviously media interest in climbing has always been higher i think in europe i mean the european media um superstars like patrick and all those people they, they they've long been used to the limelight about that on the wall dropped your phone tried to disengage but probably couldn't you went on ellen all these sorts of things so, but what, tell me about this last year um, in terms of the difference between you, your career, the influence maybe that it has on, on your future, like pre and post Dawnwall. I mean, what are the opportunities that have, have occurred being essentially maybe you're rivaling Alex as the most famous American rock climber. Right. Um, he, he's kind of had a steady version of that for a few years, but all of a sudden you were this as big a celebrity as we've ever had. I mean, are you like recognized on the street kind of guy or is it, is it that just our fantasy posted on this little teeny world of climbing? You know, I I definitely was recognized on the street by completely random people. Um, Climbers or just normal non-climbers like, uh, yeah, like I was in New York of a little bit afterwards and I'd be in a cafe in New York and people would totally like, like retired people, would recognize me more often if I was with Kevin. It was like the two of us together. Okay. They would notice that. Um, but that died off, um, essentially. But really, I haven't been able to go to a climbing gym and actually go climbing since then. So um, I joke all the time that that wrecked my life. Right. And I'm like half joking, you know. <laughs> it's kind of this weird thing. It did create this big shift that I'm still kind of reeling from. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it always felt weird. Like, I, we never sought that out. I think Kevin really facilitated the like 
kind of sprouted that whole media thing with doing the social media stuff in the beginning. And I was totally thought it was weird at first. And then I jumped on board eventually and I'm trying not to be a curmudgeon. And, and then it turned into this crazy thing. And, uh, it always made me feel weirdly like a fraud a little bit, you know, it's just like, I'm like, do we deserve this? Like, well, do I, do we even want this? Like, <laughs> It's such a bizarre thing, but there's no denying that there is a tremendous amount of opportunity that has come out of it that never would have happened Mm -hmm. and so in taking advantage of that i've barely climbed outside in the last year you know okay i've kind of had to turn it into this year of like uh just have to treat it like i'm going to school you know i learned how to do speaking events i learned how to write a book it's kind of like i'm spent 40 hours a week behind the computer which is really really different to me Mm -hmm. um so you're letting yourself go is what you're saying yeah i mean you see this the guy's like barely fit through the damn door i'm like oh this is embarrassing yeah no it's 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 kind of plus drinking at 10 a.m i mean i really gotta tell you it's not it's not good training yeah no it made me realize how spoiled i was you know as a professional climber just get to go out and be outside all the time and sitting in a desk i mean i guess a lot of people have to go through that at some point Mm -hmm. in their lives and it just made me have to do that so are you kind of comfortable or as comfortable as you can be with it in the sense that you feel like, you know, this is an opportunity, you know, whatever financial, I mean, it's obviously come with financial gain. You know, the book will probably be, uh, you know, financially a, a boon for, for you as a professional climber. Do you just see it as, all right, I got to do this right now. And, you know, just like people stopped recognizing you in a couple years, you'll probably be back to just climbing when you want and doing what you want. Yeah, I mean, that's my vision. I always I always thought that someday I'd have to, like, be a rep or, you know, just, like, get a normal job um, when my fingers weren't strong enough. And I think this has created a world where I'm like, wow, maybe I can actually make something that will sustain me in the future in the same capacity, you know? Um, and it's also made it so I've learned new skills, like writing a book. I'm learning new. I'm learning how to write. And, um, yeah, I'm doing these speaking gigs. And, and I'm able to put some money in the bank for the first time in my life. So right. I think it's worth it. And especially like, you know, I've got a kid and, and I've got another one on the way. And so I have to think about supporting that. But I want to climb and we're really selfish as climbers. And I'm like, maybe it can all come together because of this potentially. Mm-hmm. And one kind of last question, um, then I want to move on and, and, and wrap up in a little bit. But uh, OK, so you've taken you're sort of taken the year off from climbing outdoors. Not just sort of. Yeah, like pretty, pretty, pretty legitimately. Much. Okay. <laughs> and part of that is because you have all this work to do to capitalize on, on, you know, whatever you're going to capitalize on from this moment of fame, not just outside, but inside the climbing world. But was there a part of it? And I always ask this about people who complete these giant goals in their life. You know, was there any sort of like, whoa, what am I going to do now in terms of climbing? Because honestly, like, you know, every climber, every, every single professional climber or, or just hobby climber, you know, can look over their career and, and probably see something of a pinnacle. It, does it feel like, holy crap, now what? Yeah, of course it does. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but you never know. I thought that when I did the dihedral wall, I thought that when I, I mean, there's thought that when I won my first competition, you know, the dihedral like, wall people look <laughs> it up. It was incredible. It was an yeah. amazing thing that no one cared about. Really? Yeah. yeah. There's so many times where I'm I like, I don't even know if you'll find it on the internet. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many times where I'm like, well, it's all downhill from here, you know? So, so who knows? No, yeah, who knows? yeah, who knows? Yeah. But this lack of climbing, like I said, it, it, you know, you could say it had to do with, uh, with the workload, but is there, was there a part of you is like, I got to take a break? Mm, ah, not so much. Okay. I've always been the kind of person. That's the that, answer I wanted to hear. Yeah, there's always been the kind of. I've always been the kind of person that, like, my friends give me endless grief about this. Like when I climbed um, the Mirror Wall with my friend Nick Sagar, we topped out, and it was like you know five days of just so much work, and it was like at that time that was the pinnacle in my climbing career. Mm-hmm. And then I like we topped out, and I made him go belay me on the Salathe head wall like right away because before I even get to the top, I'm always I'm already like oh I'm on a roll, I gotta like take advantage of this. And that's so the same day you topped out. The same. Like, Let's wrap in and let me give a give a burn on this. Thing. Yeah, and he was like, I can't believe you're making me do this. And you'd right already now. done the Salathe head wall. Yeah, I wanted to do it in a day, so I wanted to go practice. I was like, I'm in shape right now, so. And he did? And he did, yeah. That's a good friend. Yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's ridiculous, man. (laughs) Okay, so um, one other thing that you did that's also in the climbing world, more so than the big world, garnering some acclaim is this uh, this traverse that you did with Alex Honnold uh, down in Patagonia. And that happened when? Because, I mean, uh, the, the movie's out, and the premiere of it was last summer, right? Yeah, so that yeah. was February. spring, actually. That was, like, February, so almost two years ago now is okay. when we climbed it. Yeah. So that was long before the Dawn Wall. Yeah, it was almost a year before the Dawn okay. Wall. Okay. Yeah, because yep. it, it's weird to, because, again, the movie premiered, I think, in the spring, like, four months after yeah. El Cap. So it, it felt like, well, when did he do this? Yeah. Like... <laughs> What the fuck? Like, how did he get, go, did he go straight there and like pull that thing off? Yeah. Even as someone who understands that a movie takes a while to make, I was like, well, when did this happen? Like, yeah. Like you just got on, after Ellen, you just got on a plane and yeah. ended up in, in Patagonia. Tell me just a little bit about that ascent. And I want to ask you just a couple questions um, about climbing with Alex, actually. So what do you want to know about the ascent? Yeah, well, just tell me what you guys did down there. Oh, okay. People haven't seen yeah, we did. This one didn't, you know, this one didn't get shoved down our throats like the like the Dawn Wall. Right. Thing, so. yeah. Um, yeah. So we climbed um, the Fitz Traverse, is what we named it, but it's basically the 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 massif that Fitzroy is the central mountain that we traversed that whole range, which was kind of like one of the low hanging fruits in Patagonian alpinism. Is like one of these things people. It's actually the Patagon, the company Patagonia. It's their logo. Right. We like traverse that skyline right and and though you just called it low-hanging fruit meaning that it was the obvious thing to try to do yeah versus that it was like easy to pick yeah yeah so obvious like it had you know a lot of people had tried it mm-hmm. I, I remember my first trip to patagonia probably 12 years previous to when we did it peter croft was there trying to do it you know man so yeah it'd been something people had talked about forever so in the film, you guys, um, like, there's kind of this conceit or this sort of theme that, you know, Alex Honnold, like, kind of was out of his element um, and just basically stepped up to the plate anyway, like, futzing with his crampons and, like, having the wrong shoes. I don't, I don't know the details off the top of my head, but how, how much of that is sort of the reality of what you guys were doing and how much of it is part of, like, Oh, these are funny bits for the film. Yeah, I think they played it up a little bit. Like Alex probably had, I mean, he had climbed Mount Dickey, which is, 
you know, super badass alpine climb. And I'd never done anything of that magnitude in the alpine range before, but I had probably spent more days with crampons on mm-hmm. my feet. But I think I kind of became the de facto leader of the more alpine terrain just because I was a little bit more organized. Like, you know, I figured out what we should bring and I sent I think on Mount Dickey, Alex was like the follower. He was just like looking to other people to teach him how to do it. So um, it was kind of like that with me too. He just kind of like stepped back into that role again. But I mean, he, yeah, he'd like, he didn't bring a lightweight sleeping bag. So that's why we had to sleep in a single sleeping bag the whole time. Uh (laughs) You know, he brought the wrong crampons. It was just that kind of stuff. So there definitely was an element of that. I mean, all the gear that we brought on the Traverse basically was my gear because he just like, He's just like, oh, I'll just make do with whatever I ever I whatever I have in my closet at home. Sure. And you can't really do that <laughs> on that kind of trip. <laughs> well, apparently you can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you have somebody else kind of sorting it out for you. And one of the kind of defining moments in the film and in reality is that uh is that Rolo and Colin were up there mm-hmm. and um just ahead of you guys to a certain extent or like minutes. Yeah, we started at the same okay. time and we just like went different right. ways at the beginning. And yeah. then those guys for, for I think, uh, just Rolo wasn't feeling well or feeling up to it, um, gave you guys some crampons that kind of made the difference. Yeah. You know, that's a really awesome moment. And everybody talks about Rolo. I've never met the guy. Um, we almost have in these kind of weird circumstances. But, you know, talk about this guy's sort of, that's the kind of person that he is. But at the same time, you know, what was your feeling about in the moment about this guy that was basically like you were, you know, in some ways maybe start going to steal his dream in a sense. And he basically says, go for it. Have a good time. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was hoping that we were just all four of us climb the traverse together and right. end at the same time kind of thing. Um, and the fact that he just kind of handed it over in that way was just amazing and shows his character. And, and really the fact that we did that was because of 20 years of Rolo's and Collins knowledge, basically. I mean, we had 20, 20 pages of guidebook information that he had, that he had gotten from climbing in that range for all these years. And that's what, that's what guided us as well isn't, as the cramp. I mean, isn't everybody on that guy's shoulders there? Yeah. Because I mean, he's sure. created the modern idea of the, of how to get information and how to get weather information and just like, I mean, there's nobody, I don't think that's not standing on his shoulders. That's true. Yeah, totally true. So with that, and and you guys went on to do this traverse and again, the film makes it seem like you're having a really good time. Yeah. Other than, you know, there's these moments of danger that you all, that you both sort of laugh off in the movie. Yep. Um, when you showed the film or the rough cut of the film here in, in Carbondale at five point, you read a letter that you'd written to your son Fitz named for the formation. Yep. And you talked about risk taking. Mm-hmm. So you've got this little kid. How old is he? He's two and a half now. Two and a half. Yep. Uh, looks just like you and your dad, I think. Like somewhere between you guys. Yeah. Um, already muscle bound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got the spandex. You're about there. to have another child. Boy or girl, do you know? Girl. Okay, about to have a little... Oh my God. That's so awesome. Yeah. A little girl. I'm terrified. Nah, <laughs> they're so yeah. cute. Yeah. What do you What do you do now with that risk idea? Because you spoke a little bit about that in that letter that you read here, and climbing on El Cap, obviously it has risks. Again, the the outside media 
really thought it was super risky. All of us climbers were kind of like, <laughs> we know what's yeah. going on up there. Like, okay, yeah, he can break his ankle anytime you fall yeah. on vertical terrain or whatever. There's dangers. You know, there was some rock fall. But really, you know, you guys had the whole thing fixed. You know, my joke was like, yeah, they could, they'd probably be in a hospital sooner than I would here in Carbondale. Yeah, you know? probably. Yeah, because you had like the team was there, like, <laughs> and the Rangers were watching, like, the chopper would have been in there in, in minutes. So uh. that was the reality of it. But a thing like the Fist Traverse, I mean, you know, Patagonia is a wild card, even though we talk about it being much tamer than it once was. The mountains themselves are the same, you know, the support and where you start from is different, but. There's still rockfall. There's still icefall. There's still run out climbing. What do you do with the risk nowadays? And how do you sort of like compartmentalize that in terms of the kids, in terms of, of the family, just, you know, a dedication to Becca, yeah. all those things. I mean, I've got a really high capacity for adventure. Like I love getting out and getting kind of scared and being myself up in the mountains. And I think if I had, didn't have anybody to live for, I would, I would be pursuing that hardcore you know that's what brings me to life almost more than anything else but i really feel like i've got this huge responsibility to the family so i I weigh it pretty heavily and i try and pick objectives that i'm like relatively certain i'll live through and so that's kind of how i justify it now i have alex is like my crack pusher you know he's the one being like let's go do it like we're getting you know what what can we do if we get together and that's very appealing but i see it like that it's kind of like yeah it's kind of like he's my He's like, yeah, he has like the little baggie of cocaine and he's like, (laughs) (laughs) he's like swinging it in front of my eyes being like, you should try this, you know, it's it's going to be so good. (laughs) And I'm like, oh yeah, that's so appealing, but I just shouldn't. Right. And then sometimes I'm just like, screw it. Cause I know in the moment, like once you start taking that drug, I'm, I just don't look back, you know, Mm -hmm. like I know I'm not that cautious in the moment. And so I have to be cautious from afar and it's a, bit of a constant battle in my life right but um feel like i'm doing okay at walking the line uh-huh still alive how does your how does becca feel about you walking the line <laughs> does she feel you're doing okay at it she expresses her love and want for me to stay around mm-hmm. constantly right and it's a great reminder and when you have a little cute kid at home um you know every time you're in the mountains it's you know it's on you're you're kind of viewing the climbing in your world through that lens which mm-hmm. is i think incredibly healthy now fitz was actually there when you left yeah, he but yeah. he was not there when you got down. Yeah, I've I've tried to format a life in that I always I never spend more than like two weeks away from the family. So on these okay. long trips, they come with me. Okay, not always the whole time. I try and walk this balance where I can have like the family time and then have the full on like missioning time. So mm-hmm. that's what we did down there. Becca and Fitz came for two and a half weeks, mm-hmm. and then it just so happened that the day that they flew home, um, we went into the mountains and sent the traverse. So why do you think uh, rock climbing? And not alpinism in the sense of like big snowy icy mountains. Does it have to do with risk? Does it have to do with your strength? Does it have to do with your upbringing? Or is it something that you aspire to uh, eventually in your climbing? Um, it has to do with risk. Uh, I think actually probably naturally I would be better at alpine climbing. Honestly, I'm really good at being cold. I love suffering. I'm not that strong of a rock climber, quite <laughs> honestly. <laughs> like the only, the only way I ever get it done is I'm just like more sort of singularly focused than mm-hmm. most, I, su- I suppose. Um, but you know, I've probably had 25 relatively cl- close acquaintances die in my life and 19 of them of them have been on snow wow 
Yeah. So I think that's, I just like look at it that way. I try and I try and look at it really logically. I don't see rock climbing as really that dangerous compared to, you know, when you're on snow, you're just not attached to the mountain very well. One last thing. Okay. When you got, again, when you were here for five point, uh, Julie Kennedy surprised you with a montage of a bunch of people sort of just not just praising you, but in some ways just saying hello and, and reconnecting through a bunch of video montage. We made you cry. Yeah, totally. I was there. I was emceeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, it, was the, it was the one thing I kept telling people afterwards when they were like, How, how'd Five Point go? I was like, we made Tommy Caldwell cry. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. In a happy way. Yeah, totally. So, and you were kind of, again, you talk about this group of people, your dad's friends, you know, the guides at, the, at, at CMS, and then moving into uh, a group of people that you were competing with, you know. Can you talk, besides your dad, we've talked about your dad, maybe a couple, two or three people who had some sort of specific influence on your climbing? Um, I mean, I think I've been most influenced by the people that are close to me. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I was young, it was Chris Sharma, really, because uh-huh. he was just such a phenom and he just loved climbing so much. Um, so that was huge. But I don't know. There's been people my whole life, like I have I have influences on my climbing that aren't necessarily good climbers. Like I was, I was thinking about this story the other day where, um, when I, my first trip up on the Donwall to make a film about it was basically all my friends being like, Tommy's working on this route and he's thinking about giving up. And we know that he doesn't, he shouldn't give up. And we want to bring joy to his life basically in this dark time. And so we're going to go up there with him and like make a party. And Uh (laughs) I've just always felt like I have this amazing group of friends just like looking out for me and rallying behind me. And that's amazing. And then there's like the influences in terms of inspiration, like Chris Scheimer, Alex Honnold, and, um, you know, Tom Frost, you know, there's, there's always those kind of people. Um, But I think it's the people that's really close that have the big, that I'm really closest to that have the biggest influence. All right, Tommy. Well, thanks a lot for uh, driving your butt down to Carbondale. Yeah, yeah. And uh, making time for this. I really appreciate the fact that you've been enthusiastic about doing it since the moment that I I approached you about it. Um, Even being sort of, like you said, kind of upset that I'd waited so long (laughs) to talk to you about it. But, um, you know, I just felt like... We want. I wanted to have the right time and have a good chunk of time to sit down, which is why we skipped trying to do it at the trade show or here at Five Point when you're so busy. And yeah. um, so the the main thing that I really appreciate is that you took a a chunk of time here where you knew you could relax and and talk to us all because all of us in the climbing community want you to succeed and want you to uh, to show us how it's done. So I appreciate you sitting down. Yeah. No. Thank you. Psyched to be on the show. Oh, hey, Chris. Hey, it's Lisa calling. You remember me, episode one of the Enormocast? I hear it's your hundredth episode, 
and you've somehow managed to lasso Tommy Caldwell as Lucky 100, that is awesome. But I just want to say that Tommy, you know, he may be quite the feather in your cap, but I basically, like, flashed the normal cast by being um, number one. And in the number one mobile recording studio before there was a Fuego, there was an Oasis. So congratulations. Here's to a thousand more Enormo casts. And just never forget your first. Okay? Bye. Was a drug addict. And because he himself was... Oh, you reached Chris Kalouf. Leave your name and number and I'll give you a call back. Oh, hey, yeah. It's me again, Lisa. You might remember me from episode number two of the Enormo cast. So yeah, I was one and two. I forgot about that. I mean, before you had the more erudite conversations with people like Andrew Bicharat or the more inspiring conversations with people like Steph Davis and Lynn Hill and Paige, um, you know, all those gals who probably did the Enormo cast, you know, because I did, because, you know, I kind of like paved the way for them to feel comfortable. But, you know, before you had all those intelligent conversations, there was um, Take Your Secret Crags and Shove It, which um, you might recall was a little controversial. Anyway, just wanted to remind you of all the good times we had out there in, um, in the Oasis. And, yeah, congratulations on number 100, Tommy Caldwell. That's awesome. Good job, dude. All right, talk to you soon. Oh, hey, me again, Lisa. Sorry, I'm starting to feel a little, like, stalkerish or whatever, but I also just remembered, you know, episode 57, Ladies' Night. So I think I might be, am I the only, like, three-timer on the Enormal cast? Just wondering. And, you know, like, Ladies' Night was pretty groundbreaking. It was kind of like Title IX after there was Title IX or an open letter before there were open letters. And, you know, I really knew that I had made it when a guy walked by me at the crag and kind of gave me the wink and nod and said, ladies' night, and walked on by. So, yeah, just wanted to say congratulations again. Tommy Caldwell, that's super cool. Wow, you know, I mean, I might have been a little bottom of the barrel, but I still was the first. All right, Chris, you have a good day. We'll talk soon, hopefully in the Fuego. A normal cast number 101.